Welcome, everyone. You are listening to the Buzz, an economic development podcast. And Bernie Maybank, I know you're super excited about this show in particular because we're going to talk about hard numbers, data, analysis. You, uh, your background kind of lends itself to that. Well, I do have an economics degree from the uh, University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. That would have been a few years ago, of course. Yeah. Did you always know you wanted to get into this this type of field? Have you always been kind of an analytic guy? How did you get here? I, I always <laughs> knew I wanted to make a buck. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you have your values in order. <laughs> well, we really appreciate our guest uh, coming here today. Dr. Robert Carey is a Clemson University political science lecturer and director of CU Real, which stands for Clemson University Regional Economic Analysis Laboratory. Um, CU Real performs public policy, economic, and fiscal analysis for public, private, and nonprofit sector clients. Welcome, Dr. Carey. Thanks. Really good joining you guys. Thanks for inviting me. Well, we're going to get into some of that hard data, and we're going to talk a little bit about some of the studies and the projects you've been working on. But before we get there, just give us a little introduction to CU Real, how it got started, and what the focus is. Okay, well, it actually started as part of this Old Strong Thurman Institute, if anybody remembers that from Clemson. Um, and um, it began with a model that uh, someone at uh, the Carl Vincent Institute, a graduate student at the Carl Vincent Institute had created. Uh, and we began working with that. And I worked along with him after he had already graduated and become, gotten his PhD. He graduated a couple of years before I did his PhD. And, um, and he actually trained me using that model. And unfortunately he passed away, but, um, but we continued the work. And we've now transitioned to using primarily the Remy model, which is a national model. And the Strom Thurmond Institute actually uh, kind of uh, has, uh, is no longer around as a policy institute per se. So that's why I'm in the political science department now and uh, getting to teach there and really enjoying it. But the, um, but the laboratory has continued and, um, and just kind of has kind of gained some traction and gotten a lot of really, really exciting work I've gotten to do. I really enjoy doing this work. Uh, I'm like, I'm like, I'm like Bernie. I've always known I, I was known yes. I wanted to make a buck, but I've always, <laughs> loved, I've always loved economics ever since high school. And so, um, so I enjoy getting to do this. So it's a lot of fun. Uh, and well, we just look at the economic impact of stuff, fiscal impacts and, and uh, get into the numbers, like you said. Well, and, and your reports, the CU Real reports, have been used to inform state legislation, uh, distribution of local tax revenue to support capital campaigns, so a variety of avenues. Um, when we're looking at the numbers in some of your more recent work, what have you, have you found some numbers that have been surprising uh, that you'd like to share with us that, that tells the picture of where our state is right now in certain circumstances? Well, I think, um, well... I'd say uh, surprising wise, I would say, uh, well, really not that surprising, but uh, some of the fiscal impact numbers I've got to do um, has, uh, has attributed to things like Clemson's uh, economic, uh, well, Clemson's not just economic, but fiscal impact on state government uh, revenue. Uh, Clemson actually generates, um, this is a good time to plug this, I guess, Clemson actually generates uh, a positive uh, net return on, uh, on state government revenue. So the state government actually gets back a lot more in tax revenue from all of the spillover effects from Clemson's activities and student spending and visitor spending and things of that nature, than it actually shells out to the university every year. So it's a very large positive return on tax investment. Um, 
another thing I've actually found that I was a little bit interesting. Uh, it, once I actually dug into it, it wasn't surprising as I thought it would be, but I've actually done some fiscal projections of school districts around the, around the state. And um, this actually has become kind of something I talk about in my classes a lot is Act 388 and the effect it's actually had on uh, school district revenues. Uh, districts that actually fall in um, uh, kind of uh, uh, bedroom communities in a sense around uh, urban areas actually wind up losing a lot of revenue, whereas you have the ones in the more urbanized areas have more industrial development actually get growing revenue out of the future. And that disparity was something that kind of surprised me when I first ran across it. But, uh, but once I, like I said, once I started digging into the, uh, the, the idea behind what's happening, it kind of started making sense. So, um, so that's really as far as kind of things I found that been really interesting. That's kind of that kind of stands out. So Act 388 was a was a terrible bill. Um, I spoke I spoke against it to the Charleston Metro Chamber of Commerce just a couple of a couple of weeks ago. You know, it, it's produced. We have the very lowest residential. Um, tax rate in the country, uh, and we have the very highest manufacturer's tax rate. The entire tax base is shifted to commercial and to manufacturers, and it's a, had a very negative impact on economic development in the state. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, um, I, will, I will confess, though, uh, my wife and I did a refi a couple of years ago and forgot to, and it actually wound up, you know, kind of have resetting to a 6% assessment ratio. And I'd had a pretty major sticker shot when I got that tax bill. <laughs> so I will say I do appreciate that part. But <laughs> we have we have a, we have the Lincoln Institute does an annual study and it says South Carolina is is third highest in the country in the differential between primary residents and commercial. And your second home is taxed as as commercial. And then we are we are the very very highest in the country in the tax differential between primary residents and apartments. And as I've often said, there, there's got to be a racial component to that. If you assume African Americans rent a lot more than than Caucasians rent, you know that that tax differential is is hitting them very hard. Right. It certainly does make it regressive. All right. Well, tell us about some more more of the studies that you've done. I, I was looking at the one with. Um, the future population growth on Berkeley County in the school district finances. And the thing that I found interesting is how much you dig in and also just kind of that analysis, including the effects of manufacturers like Volvo and, and how they are going to influence the area. So can you dive in a little bit on that? And um, again, what you found and how it may play out as we continue to look at these numbers? Oh, uh, that's uh, yeah. Thanks. That's uh, that goes. That's actually the first one that I did uh, of the school districts, and that's where I was, and um, you know where I actually started seeing the effect of tax Act three eighty eight. Uh, Berkeley County actually fared pretty well uh, there because they do, like you said, they have a large manufacturing base. And actually, a really funny story with that mod with that project. I was actually in the pro actually had already done the models and was in the process of writing the report when they announced Volvo. <laughs> hmm. And so I had to go back and redo uh, because. Um, oh, joy. <laughs> yeah, actually, I was actually I mean, my first my first thought was that like, oh, my goodness. But then I'm like, wow, this is cool. <laughs> so I actually enjoyed getting to go back and, and, and look at the comparison. And you, you probably noticed in the report. I left the old numbers in there, just did a comparison between the two. And um, it was just really fascinating to get to see that. But, uh, but yeah, just diving into those numbers and doing the projection was uh, really just fascinating. And um, 
And uh, seeing the way school districts are financed, really kind of seeing behind the curtain, actually looking at their financial records, which of course are available online. There's nothing confidential about that. Um, just pulling, pulling up those, those, uh, those records, the financial records, and looking at how the school financing is structured. It's incredibly complex. <laughs> um, and that was a really challenging model to do, but it was a lot of fun. And thankfully I've been able to replicate it a few times. So, uh, so yeah, and then I actually did Dorchester District Number Two right next door, next, and that's where I realized the Act 388 effect because Dorchester, the southern part of Dorchester, does not have as much industry, and so uh, so I definitely saw the impact there. The the um, good Post and Courier ran a, a large article just about two weeks ago. Um, the public entities are now required under GAP to report the cost of tax incentives to their budget. And Good Jobs First said that Berkeley County was number one in the entire United States and that how much the incentives cost the county. Now, part of that is just because they are exploding. They are, they are giving a lot of fee and lieu, which is a property tax incentive. And because their taxes are so high, um, they're uh, when they give the incentive, it has a, a much more significant impact than a state like North Carolina, whose taxes are much lower. So when North Carolina gives an incentive, there isn't nearly that that revenue impact. But they they said Berkeley County School District was number one in the country, and the uh, and the amount of incentives it co costs the school district. Right, and uh, that actually uh, did come up during the study. Unfortunately, the time I did the study, the school district didn't have, uh, wasn't privy to what the incentives actually were. So we couldn't incorporate that into the, the analysis. Right. It, took a, it took a huge amount of work to implement um, that gap standard. Well, there's a lot of, a lot of criticism, uh, not so much in the pandemic, but prior to the pandemic that, that you know, uh, local governments give away incentives. Um, and, and so local governments, all local and state governments, all do cost-benefit analysis. Uh, can you give a local government or the State Department of Commerce some guidance on a good cost-benefit analysis? I think uh, the best way to do it, at least the way I've done it, um, in a sense, I did this for, uh, there was a uh, bill for uh, actually exempting military pension income from uh, South Carolina income tax. And I did a right. cost benefit analysis for that. And actually, I did a dynamic scoring model that I built using the Remy model and our, and our own uh, fiscal impact analysis tool. And, um, and that's really, really, that's the, good, the best way to do it, I think, because it takes into account not just the, uh, you know, of course, um, uh, the uh, State uh, Bureau of Economic Analysis does uh, does their their own static scoring, which basically just says, okay, you're paying this much tax now, you cut the tax rate, you pay less tax now, which is the way the CBO does it in Washington. But dynamic scoring actually takes into account, okay, when you actually do cut that or or give that incentive or whatever you do, it's going to have an actually a macroeconomic effect. And you have to figure that back into the taxes as well to figure out, okay, that's going to generate some additional tax revenue so it might not cost as much as the static scoring indicates, right, uh, right. but there's but there's still such a controversy about whether these incentives inducements actually pay for themselves or not, and um, and and it, a lot of it just depends on the economic macroeconomic effect it has, how much it, it generates economic migration of people actually just coming into the state to take advantage of higher relative wage rates because of more jobs. Um, do you get a big influx of that? That can have a big positive impact. Although 
I will say on local governments, population diffusion can have a negative fiscal impact because most of the demand um, uh, from new residents coming in is on local government. And so local governments wind up pairing the brunt of that cost when new people right. come in. Well, state well, government actually pretty well. And, and I think you raise a really good point here. You know, sometimes the headlines make it sound so simple or, you know, that, that there's a, a conclusion, but it is, a lot of it too is based on time, right? Impact and, and seeing how some of it plays out. So when people take time and they read some numbers or see something on the news um, that maybe you can't take it completely at face value and there's so much more to, to be done. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> and and on, on military, the, we've tried to recruit military. People don't realize how young you retire in the military. And so they, they're coming here not at age 65. They're coming here at age 52. And they're going to have a job. They're going to be working here for another, you know, 20, maybe even 25 years. And so they're going to be earning income and paying taxes on that. They just won't be paying it on the pension. And then with South Carolina, at times we flirt with completely full employment and it's just not easy to, to hire. Um, and so having, you know, well-trained military people retire to South Carolina is very, is very attractive. Um, have you looked at our unemployment rate? It, it looks like we're, we're, you know, we're below the national average and looks like we're almost flirting at full employment. We're looking pretty good. It's exciting. Um, I haven't looked at the labor force participation rate, but I believe it actually is going up, if I'm not mistaken. So that would, the two together actually would be very good, very good news. Very good, except small for everybody but small businesses who can't hire. Right. Um, <laughs> it's been very tough on them. What, uh, what studies are you working on now, if you can, if you can share that with us? Well, the, the main one I'm working on right now is I'm actually updating the Clemson Economic Impact Analysis. Um, I just was running models yesterday with that. So, um, you know, I actually found Clemson had over a $3 billion impact on the state back in 2017. Um, but um, updating those numbers now to bring us up to the present, of course, we'll see what impact COVID had on that. Um, right. Yeah, that's going to be pretty substantial. That'll be pretty interesting, too. Mm -hmm. Just just the six or so home football games. I mean, you bring 80,000 people. Can you imagine if we had, uh, you know, six country western music festivals that brought 80,000 people to the state? I mean, that's a... That, that's a lot of gasoline, a lot of hotel rooms, a lot of food. Um, it's a big revenue impact. And absolutely. And uh, last season was, uh, uh, it wasn't as painful as I think we thought it would be because they were able to do limited in-person attendance. But I remember last summer we were discussing this and, uh, you know, if are they going to allow people in the stadium? And that would have been such a huge hit to the local economy because right. a lot of local businesses depend on that, that revenue from the, the and plus the students you know if, if we had had to go entirely online last year we would have had a lot more business going under than what happened it would have been horrible for clemson downtown this is a little off your your current study topic but with your um profession and your classes uh obviously the pandemic no one planned for it but has this been just interesting for you to dive into and watch and discuss with your students of just that the the not knowing exactly how it's going to look oh absolutely uncertainty is is various as i know bernie remembers from uh from school from you know unc uncertainty is horrible for economics if you don't know what's going to happen you can't plan if you can't plan it's it's very bad 
And uh, it's amazing how well the economy is doing. But the, um, but yeah, the pandemic is really, not my first response aside from, you know, the, uh, just the fact, okay, well, I'm gonna just stay at home. We can't go anywhere for, <laughs> for probably close to a year now, it turns out. But just the, the fact of how good the economy was before the pandemic, and then to have this kind of recession just slam into us like that was a little depressing, actually. <laughs> as a, <laughs> as a, an economist who like really follows this stuff, I just kind of, <clears throat> I was really just bummed out for a long time about it. Um, but, um, but I'm very happy we did get the V-shaped recovery that um, I was hoping we would get. A lot of people were saying they're hoping we'd get. And so we did get that. And uh, clearly there are some things that are gonna have to recover. Uh, the labor market's gonna be a trick because of a lot of people have shifted to cost saving measures. And plus, like what Bernie just said, we have a lot of people just, you know, you have jobs that are open and people are still employed or just are choosing not to come back into the, the workforce. And uh, for a lot of different reasons, there are a lot of reasons for that. So, um, so that's a big, big hit as well. Um, but yeah, so the, actually I did some, uh, I did talk to some people in local chambers of commerce about this. And, and as they were looking at starting to open the economy back up, you know, it's like, how do we do this and that sort of thing. And so it was into some discussions with them about that. And it was very interesting. I, I did enjoy getting to kind of be, uh, in the in the fold of the information there like that of actually getting to discuss that with people that was a lot of fun um but um but yeah no that that's tough for the chambers by the way we hurt very badly too because they get their money off of uh hospitality taxes which right uh, tell us about helping the seafood market did you work on that study oh yeah yeah the uh, that's a grant it's actually a usda grant that i'm working on and we're actually looking at the effect that um that local uh, shellfish manufacturing, or not manufacturing, aquaculture rather, has on the state. And it's a pretty small operation right now, but they are looking to try to expand that a little bit. And um, and so we're, we're still in the middle of that grant, but we did do that webinar that was uh, really a lot of fun to get to do. And it's really, it's really funny, I might have even commented when I did the webinar, but, you know, we, we talk about oysters and all this stuff. I tell you, I, I love seafood. <laughs> I'm with you. Yeah. And so the whole time we're talking, every time we have a meeting with a group of us that's working on this grant, my mouth just starts watering. <laughs> and they're showing pictures of oysters and stuff like that. I'm like, oh, I'm getting so hungry. <laughs> well, you just taught me a new term I had not heard of aquaculture. I like that. I'm going to start using that in my vernacular. There you go. <laughs> Well, super. We've learned a lot here today. Uh, unfortunately, our time is, is running out. Before we let you go, um, any trends, any things from an economic development standpoint that our viewers might be interested in following or that we should be uh, thinking about before we let you go? And let me tell you that the, the number one thing on their mind, and you probably haven't looked at it, is local small business just simply can't hire. Do you see any, any trend there? It's going to, yeah, the, I think it's actually, it helped when uh, uh, Government Master did kind of stop the, the bonus amount on uh, unemployment insurance. I know a lot of people argued about whether that was an effect or not, but it did seem to have an impact pretty quickly. Of course, we always say in academics, cause, was it correlation does not necessarily imply causality, but it did seem like things picked up a little bit when they did that. Um, but the, um, but yeah, it's going to be, I think the biggest thing is getting through this, this, um, this uh, surge is uh, people are uncertain. One of the things affecting this are people are uncertain whether they want to go back to work, not just because are they getting unemployment coverage, 
but the question is, are they going to be exposed to the to the virus? So, you know, when, when as people get develop either natural immunity or more people get vaccinated or anything like that, hopefully we'll start seeing that pick up for uh, for the uh, small businesses a little bit, because you know they they can't offer the the pay to to, to lure people back that a large company can. So. I think one of the biggest impact last year was was when school went virtual. You know, one parent had to be home. You know, during the work day, or if you have to quarantine, or you know, mm-hmm. anything that would take you out of their normal traditional day. Right. Exactly. Yeah, that's a big factor as well. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Robert Carey is a Clemson University political science lecturer and director of CU Real. We appreciate it and we'll continue to follow your work and maybe you can come back and join us again. Thanks for having me. This went very quickly. Uh, it did. Kind of status <laughs> over already. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You did a great job and it, time flies when you're talking economics. Yes, it does. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, Dr. Carey. And thank you so much for joining us for The Buzz. We appreciate your time and we hope to see you on some of the other episodes too. If you haven't already, check them out. Have a great day.